welcome to the Freud Museum and welcome to the uh, this launch of the medicine issue. Um, I think there are sort of two ways to get inside the head. Obviously, neurology and uh, psychoanalysis is, is one way, and uh, one of the reasons why we can do that is, is the man who lived in this building um, and began his life as a neurologist and became a psychoanalyst and created the foundation for how we talk about what's ailing us um, and its mysterious origins. But obviously the other way is, is, is through writing and through fiction, and through storytelling. Uh, and the people that I have with me on stage here uh, have the unique ability to do both. On my far left is Ike Anya, who's a public health official at the NHS. Uh, uh, that makes him sound incredibly officious. You can tell from his shirt he's not. Um, <laughs> he's co-edited the Waverbird Collection, which is a new an anthology of new Nigerian writing, and he was co-author of a anonymous but quite successful blog called Nigerian Health Watch. Um, thank you for joining us, Ike. His thank you. piece in the magazine um, is about treating depression in a country where depression doesn't exist. Um, and to my closer left is Chloe Ridges, who's a London-based Mexican writer. She was born in New York City, grew up in Mexico City in Holland. Uh, her first book, Magic and Poetry in 19th Century France, was published in 2005. I just recently learned about this. <laughs> it only came out in Spanish, so... Um, I read it uh, in my imagination. <laughs> the novel I did read uh, was called The Book of Clouds, a, a beautiful, mesmerizing, cosmologically um, intense book, uh, that which was published in the U.S. and, and the U.K. in 2009, and, and it will be or has already been published in Mexico, Spain, France, Croatia, and Romania. She's written a wonderful piece for our website um, about the psychological impact of traveling in space for Russian cosmonauts. And it ends with a phrase um, that I, I really just wished um, was, was could, could start this, this discussion, which is um, how do we explain or open up the darkness? Uh, and, and I wonder if you could just kick us off here by describing how the story of these cosmonauts came to you mm. and what you felt as you started to imagine their, their free fall. Mm. Well, something that always was very enigmatic and, and fascinating, the Soviet, especially the Soviet space program, and, and very elusive as was daily life in the Soviet Union. And so when, um, when Ted asked me to write a piece for, for the medicine issue, I remembered my friend Stefan from Berlin, whose grandfather had, well, I'll, I'll read a bit from it, but um, had mentioned his, his grandfather in Moscow who had treated the cosmonauts. And that just set off so many fantasy, so much reverie. And, uh, and it was sort of orbiting my mind for years. And so when... when it just all came together, and then I'd been very interested in the Soviet circus, and um, and the and defiance of gravity, which of course has much more symbolism in uh, well in countries where there's some kind of totalitarian regime, or, um, and also uh, and but the cosmonauts, as opposed to say the astronauts, there was such a suppression of the individual in favor of the collective cause and. Um, sort of a white, well, an airbrushing, a whitewashing of psychology that, um, to, to fit idealized notions of citizenry, that um, <coughs> it just took on symbolism and, um, and uh, well, yeah, it took off in so many directions that, it, that um, You had to write a piece. Yeah. 
And when, when I read, it'll it'll make sense when I. <laughs> well, why don't, you, why don't you read some for us? Okay. Should I just start from the beginning? Sometime during the summer of 1986, I went with my family to see a circus version of Bulgakov's *The Master and Margarita* in an outdoor theater in Kreuzberg, West Berlin. My only memory of the production is of Margarita herself on a trapeze, her laughter vampish and defiant as she sliced the air above us. By then we were nearing the end of the Cold War, though at the time no one knew it, and right there in a courtyard, meters away from the wall, was this exultant and ephemeral expression of the conquest of space. The conquest of space. The phrase comes up again and again as I sift through dozens of Soviet documents of the period. By 1986, the ardent years of the space age were, of course, over. Its most noble vestiges, a few space stations orbiting Earth, but the embers still retain a beguiling and decidedly nostalgic glow. In East Berlin especially, there has always been a great habitation of the sky. The television tower in Alexanderplatz, often beheaded by fog. The stately socialist buildings lining Karl Marx Allee. The less elegant prefabricated tower blocks further east. <coughs> that same summer of 86, I crossed Checkpoint Charlie and in a bookstore in Friedrichstrasse, one of East Berlin's most important arteries, I met my friend Stefan. Born in Moscow, where he lived until the age of eight, he spoke, among other things, about his Russian grandfather, Ivan Ivanovich Bryanov, who in the late 50s and early 60s had been doctor to the Soviet cosmonauts, endeavoring to cure them of their more terrestrial ailments. And it was Stefan who, 20 years later, when I was writing my first novel, accompanied, accompanied me to Marzahn, deep in East Berlin, to research the area. As we drove down the Allée de Cosmonauten, one of its main avenues, there's a cosmonauts alley in Moscow too, I remember expecting to see the huge faces of the cosmonauts looming overhead, as if chiseled from rock like the faces of the American presidents in Mount Rushmore, heroes from another epoch who silently, inscrutably, watched over their citizens. Around that time, Stefan mentioned that his grandfather, at age 94, had, stopped, had just finished writing his memoirs, which included his experience treating the cosmonauts. He promised to show them to me one day, once he had finished translating them from Russian into German. And here's the abbreviated answer. As is often the case with the promise of a text one starts out by imagining, with no foothold on reality other than an intriguing description, the fantasies and secondary research it inspired proved to be more enthralling than the actual document. The longer I waited for Stefan to send me passages from the text, the more I dreamt about what it might contain, what strange unsettling insights into the lives of these mythical cosmonauts would be granted. Yeah, why don't you stop, stop there. Um, what, one thing you, that I found quite fascinating about your mm -hmm. piece is, is how you describe the difference between American astronauts and the Russian mm -hmm. cosmonauts, and that the, the cosmonauts suffered from a kind of metaphysical vertigo in a way that the Americans didn't because they were atheists. And exactly. That, so what, what, what exactly does that mean? What, what's they, the, American, the astronauts, in many of the interviews I read, they all spoke about space travel as a very, well, nearly all of them, as a very transcendent experience, feeling closer to God, or somehow seeing the Earth, removed from the Earth, and uh, a different glimpse of reality from there, and then, of course, upon return. But somehow, there wasn't... Of course, they also spoke about their experience much more, where the cosmonauts upon return uh, kept most of it to themselves, or mm. perhaps decades later, until, actually until Gorbachev and Glasnost, when the documents became declassified, um, many things came to light, and the failures within the space program did, because at the time, everything was kept, you know, for propaganda value too, was kept 
classified. Makes you wonder if the if the necessity, if it's necessary to believe in something, something in order higher. to have the sublime yeah. experience, yeah. you know, to be have something awesome and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, because the athe- because they have atheism so ingrained in it that it's. Uh, and later in the piece, you just you you start um, also talking to aerial artists and. Clowns and 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 you start you, you investigate space in a kind of lateral way. Mm. Um, what, what what made you make that move? Because you could have just basically focused on astronauts. Yeah. Well, I suppose it was always my interest in circus that was just sort of buzzing in the background when I was thinking about the piece. And um, what I say later in the essay is also just how there are these professions that are somehow defined mostly by motion. So say the the uh, trapezist or the the acrobat, the the funambulist on the, the high wire, um, it's very much a kinetic existence, and 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 yeah, the profession's very much uh, defined by both the prospect and the limitations of what they're doing. So um, I just thought it's compl- very different psychology, probably, and this defiance of gravity and experience of weightlessness and how the the effects that would have on the mind because. Icarus could not have been Russian. No, exactly. Well, um, you're a fiction writer, and and when you write fiction, you have the ultimate access to your character's psychology because you're creating it, and you can dip in and out, and you can give them problems, and you can give them solutions, or you can give them what you give them in in your novel, which is a kind of melancholy, Mm. uh, which seems very Freudian. Uh, What is it like when you have to write nonfiction? This is your second piece for us. very beautiful writing, and uh, your first piece was about your father in Mexico City, and and you were also in that piece doing the same kind of quasi-fictional imagining. Do you have trouble giving up that access as a writer? I can't. I'm terrible at realism. I can't. I can't focus on reality. I, I, my mind just goes immediately in another direction. I can't. There's. I guess there's the the gravitational pull is not towards the center of Earth somewhere. Mm. In our previous event, we were uh, we were with Maria Highland, who wrote a piece about having MS, and mm-hmm. Ike and Maria, and uh, we're talking about the sort of the context in which medical diagnoses are made, and and how difficult that makes it to be essentialist about certain ways of treatment, um, and also the way that you write about a, a, a medical condition. And you've you've lived in many different countries. Um, what has your experience been, even if anecdotally, with uh, depression and how it's dis- discussed and treated in in Holland or Mexico and and Germany. What's the next question? Well, of course, it's yeah. Uh, well, but yeah, it's easier to call it if one suffers from it melancholy. Somehow that makes it less <laughs> difficult to accept, easy to accept. Rather. But um, I'm not saying your own experience, but just sort of your yeah, experience no, of I, people of, around yeah, you. Personally. But if you want to speak personally, um, uh, I have a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's interesting, of course, there's. Um, having gone first to university in the United States, most of my friends from those years, all, mo- I'd say at least half take antidepressants and are in some kind of therapy. Uh, in Mexico, I have a few who are in therapy, a few friends who are in therapy, but it's, and there was, of course, a, there has been both Freudian and Lithuanian tradition in Mexico, but um, it's definitely not part of the currency in the way it is. And here, too, it's, but, um, Holland, I was too young. I was a child, so mm. well, you, you see children on the playground who seem sad. <laughs> you have no idea. But um, um, 
What was the exact question? Just my experience witnessing. What 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 sort of what ways do do, do people in Mexico versus Holland versus Germany versus America in your own anecdotal experience mm. talk about uh, depression mm. and, yeah. and how do they differ? It just surfaces in different in different guises, I guess. And in Mexico, it's um, there's less isn't immediately taking some a pill or seeing a therapist somehow I think say with many of my artist friends they're uh, they just it's all channeled into their work and they don't treat it they don't ever treat it and they're the same issues they had 20 years ago mm. it's a way of maintaining everything in place as well mm. Mm. growing up around artists and poets and did, did was that notion that mythology that somehow writers and need to suffer from melancholy in, in order to produce? Yes, is it's it not very helpful, but it's... Is it know. true? I think not. My, my father actually is someone who... He had an accident when he was 10 and nearly died. And for him, every day is a gift of life. And so he doesn't have much time for indulging um, those sorts of thoughts. And he's someone who just doesn't... He has many anxieties, especially about the state of the country and politics. But he actually doesn't... He's not a depressive or anxious person. Mm -hmm. And so I've witnessed it very much firsthand. One could be creative and extremely productive, writing eight hours a day and not be in this melancholy manner. I want to ask you one more question before I um, get Mr. Mm -hmm. Anya to read some of his, some of his piece. Um, you know, as a fiction writer, does, does, the, does our focus on, on the treatment of, of ailments of the mind through chemicals and through, through medicine pills, um, does it scramble the circuits at all of what you do, or, or is that really, to you, really treating the brain and not the mind? Well, I, actually something I was speaking to Ike about uh, ten minutes ago was speaking, say, from personal experience, which is more interesting than the moment, is I've had chronic insomnia since I was a child, or since the cradle, actually, and uh, take quite a few sleeping pills. And it's very much something that's constantly on my mind. And there's each night at, at least a 10-minute debate. Should I, should I not? Should I should just switch, just force the computer to close down or just let this boring machine keep going and eventually it'll tire itself out. And so it's, and it's something, a conflict that I experience almost on a daily, nightly basis is mm. whether to medicate or just let you know, the circuitry run and... I sometimes wonder if, if the, our prevalence, our connection, our, our constant connection to machines is, is switching the metaphor through which we view our lives from organic metaphors to yeah, there's mechanical. Machine, yeah, there's a lot of mechanical metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> on, on that note, I want to uh, ask Ike to talk a little bit about your piece. Your, um, this is uh, sort of coming out for you. This is your second or third piece of, of published writing um, but you seem to have leapfrogged over the general <laughs> kind of public health official opinion writing and something quite, it looks quite a bit like literature. Where does that come from? I, I don't know. I mean, um, I've sort of, I, 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 I wrote, the first thing I remember writing was when I was 10, I wrote a poem about the expressway, which was this new road that had been built. And, and um, in primary school, uh, I grew up in a university town in Nigeria. And in, you know, I went to the local primary school there, and we had this tradition where the um, each class would be called to 
entertain the school at assembly. And so my teacher read the poem and said, right, the next time we're called, we're going to read Ike's poem. And so it was read, and, you know, and in some ways I think, I don't know, I shouldn't probably be admitting this here, but I think that whole sense of listening to the whole school hear my poem being read, you know, it it felt quite nice. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and yes, and somehow, you know, I've always sort of dabbled in second school and university, I started writing poetry, most of it very bad, and a lot of it is actually online, so... um, so you, you you will not escape it, <laughs> and um, and then so I suppose it's it's been a gradual process, and I have lots of. Um, I think for me, actually, it's about reading. That's that's the beginning. It all starts with reading. I love books. I I'm almost pathologically addicted to books. You know, if I go out on my lunch break and I haven't got a book, I sort of go out and buy something. You know, even if it's a newspaper, I, I can't not. You know, I remember reading about people who, when there was some terror threat um, here, they had everything taken off them at the airport, so you know, you couldn't fly with everything. For me, I thought that was the worst nightmare, flying to Los Angeles eight hours and nothing to read. Um, I probably have. Actually, Los Angeles is kind of a nightmare, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, so I, I don't know, that's sort of where it came from. And I suppose this particular piece, which is about being a young doctor in Nigeria, in a rural community in northern Nigeria, you, you, you know, it was a time of um, you know, a lot of things. You're processing um, becoming a doctor with all this responsibility and, 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 and what that means. Um, you're processing... In Nigeria, you have to do national service, and I was, you know, this was my year of national service. Every university graduate has to, and so you know, there I was, Southern Christian, um, you know, from a fairly middle-class background, and then thrust into this place with no electricity, no running water, um, largely Muslim, you know, completely different way of life, and so it was quite a profound year. 14 months in my life, and I think it was that reflecting on that uh, with time, and I you know, I mentioned this yesterday, I think coming to the UK to read uh, a Master's in Public Health and having to do social science as part of that made me very conscious of, of the limits, um, well, made me much more reflective, I suppose, of, of, you know, of what I, w- I did and what I you know, and the meaning and, and what it meant. And, and I then started looking back as well and thinking, oh, you know, when I did this, it wasn't just this. There were all these other factors playing, playing out then. And, and, you know, and it's, I mean, I would, it's a way of life I'd strongly recommend to everyone because I think, you know, when you realize that there are these other, you know, we're all a product of our, birth and upbringing and culture and socialization and all sorts of different factors, then you're less likely to judge harshly when you come across behavior that's different from yours. You're more able to understand, you know, and it helps in also, you know, it helps in a consultation with a patient. As a doctor, you're sort of thinking, okay, 
this person coming into my room, what are they feeling? You know, and I, and I had a brilliant consultant here who always used to say to me, you know, put yourself in their shoes. You know, so, you know, and she did it not only with patients but also with meetings. She would say, okay, so you're going to this consultant to tell him that you want to change the way they record this. You know, you're a young Nigerian doctor. You know, he's not sure whether you speak English properly. You know, and, and it helps. So, you know, putting myself there, I would think, okay, so what do I need to say or do to reassure this person to, you know, to make them comfortable before I then start presenting whatever it is um, I'm trying to present. So I think all of that come together to play in, in my writing this, this piece. Um, Can you read some for us? Yes, I'd run out of things to say. <laughs> okay. So this is called People Don't Get Depressed in Nigeria. It is a cold January morning and I am sitting in a cafe on a busy London street. Looking out of the window, I watch people bustle determinedly along the pavement. I remember how my English friends used to complain that I walked too slowly when I first arrived in London. I thought they walked too fast. But now, in the chill of winter, I find myself quickening my own pace and lengthening my strides, eager to get back to warmth. I unfold the newspaper that I found lying on the table and struggle to keep the still unfamiliar outsized pages from encroaching upon the space of the people seated at the tables next to me. I open the newspaper and the word Nigeria catches my eye. It is funny how my mind always, almost unconsciously, seems to seek that word out whenever I am reading a paper. Sometimes I am fooled and the reference is to Nicaragua. But this time my eyes have found a worthy target. It's a feature on the young British Nigerian novelist Helen Oyeyemi, in which she speaks of her struggle with depression in her teenage years and the difficulty her parents faced with understanding it. Because people don't get depressed in Nigeria, she says, they were like, cheer up, get on with it. The black words sliding over the page carry me back in time to another place where I too, like Helen's parents, believed that people don't get depressed in Nigeria. So I'll skip a bit and then. I walk out into the living room that I share with the other occupant of the small two-bedroomed house set on the edge of the hospital compound and head for the bathroom. There I retrieve my battered metal bucket and head out to draw the water for my morning ablutions. At the well, there is a gaggle of young children chattering rhythmically in Hausa as they deftly throw the black rubber guga into the well hauling it up to fill the buckets and jerry cans surrounding it. As they see me make my way along the path, lined with bowing neem trees, they shriek their greetings, laughing, excited. Sanu, Likita, Sanu. I am Likita, Hausa for doctor, and I am 27 years old, freshly qualified for medical school in southern Nigeria, and posted to this small northern village for my national service. And I skip over that a little bit. I walk down the tree-lined mud path that leads from the grandly named staff quarters to the hospital 
Pausing on the way as I meet colorfully dressed and veiled women heading for the market in the next village who greet me in the elaborate formal ritual of the Hausa culture. Inakwana, inakwana, I echo as they inquire after my well-being, my work, my family. Inagajia, baagajia, yaya aiki, degodia. We finish off with a madala and I make my way along the low-ceilinged corridors to the clinic where, as usual, there is a large mass of people of all ages and sexes already gathered. Looking into the distance, I notice that work seems to have started again on the wall that is being built around the hospital by the Petroleum Trust Fund. It isn't clear who has decided that this is what we need most. A generator to stop us doing surgery by lantern light might have been good, as would some equipment for Wilson's fledgling laboratory. But the contracts have been awarded in far away Abuja and Kano, and so I suppose we must be grateful that the contractor at least seems to be making a good fist of building the wall, which is supposed to provide us with additional security. And he has employed local laborers to do it, so we must be grateful for that as well. Muttering angrily to myself, I settle into my chair and ask Sunny, the cheerful youth who, with his smattering of English, has bagged the role of interpreter to summon the first patient. I hear him calling out a woman's name, having first, with an air of self-importance, bid the crowd to be quiet and to listen well. I have soon learned that everyone who works in the hospital is highly revered in the village. We all, apparently, are called Likita, and there are rumors that the theater cleaner, the hulking kaka, runs a thriving sideline in low-priced hernia surgeries, <laughs> performed after hours in his living room. Considering how bare the theater itself is, his living room may perhaps not be that much more under-equipped for the purpose. A bearded young man, perhaps 25 years old, dressed in a blue riga, walks into the room carrying a toddler in one arm and with the other solicitously leading a young woman, a girl really, dressed in the simple wax print wrapper and blouse with a loosely tied headscarf that is the common dress of all the female folk here. He greets me respectfully but with an air of distraction as Sunny ushers the girl into the seat. The young man stands guard beside her holding the baby and focusing on my face. She sits listlessly, head bowed, silent. Her problem started, Sunny translates, perhaps a year or so ago, soon after the birth of the little boy, their firstborn. She would spend almost the whole day lying on the mat asleep. She had stopped smiling or singing while she cooked. She now cried a lot and had ceased doing all of her household chores. I can see the concern on the husband's face as he recounts the many ways in which the girl has changed from the cheerful, industrious woman he married to this lifeless bundle of misery draped floppily on the chair beside me. He swears that he has been good to her, that he does not beat her, even though he is only a poor farmer. And I can see it in the newness of her cheap wax print outfit and in the rows of bangles that adorn her wrists. They have taken her to see a number of traditional healers, but the Maganinga Gajia has failed to work its magic. And so, against the advice of his family and hers, he has brought her here to try Western medicine. Thank you.
So did, did you come across many patients like her uh, in your service? No, not many, not many. And that's, in some ways, that's why it, um, she, she stayed with me. Um, because it, it, it was quite unusual, um, the, that particular presentation. And I mean, I don't go on further, but you know, if you read the whole essay, you see that although I had been trained in medical school to recognize depression and we had seen some patients deep down inside, and I think it's an interesting thing when we're talking about the mind, because it's, you know, we knew the textbook stuff, but deep down inside, we sort of felt depression was a Western illness. It was something that wealthy women who had, you know, not much on their hands to do, um, indulged in. I thought, you know, this young woman, she works hard, you know, she's had a really hard life. How can she, you know, what time does she have to say, I'm sad, I'm, you know. And, and I think, no, so, no, the answer, the short answer is no. I, I didn't have many patients like her. But going back to the point, you know, the point about reflection and, you know, looking back, I remember that, you know, every, we were also told that lots of Nigerians, you know, in medical school, we were also taught that lots of Nigerians would present with something, or, you know, would come to the doctor with something they called crawling sensations. And, the, you know, and the professors all said, you know, this is actually psychosomatic and it's, it's a way. But, you know, in a way, we never really made that connection between the crawling sensations and, and depression necessarily. And I think what stuck out in, in relation to this young woman was actually that she was more classical Western in the, in the present, you know, the symptoms were more classically Western in the, in the presentation. And, you know, crawling sensations, I don't think any doctor, nurse, health worker in Nigeria would you know, it's one of the common, you know, in a day, if you see 10 patients, you will have one with crawling sensations, and they say, you know, doctor, it starts here, and it goes right down to my back, and it comes. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting how, you know, people have different ways of expressing this. And, you know, my, I have an aunt, my mom's sister, and I sent her this essay yesterday when it came on the um, on the website, and she sent me an email saying that this is wonderful, I loved reading it. I said, no, depression exists in Nigeria, but it's just called different names, and you know, and she said traditionally in Igbo land, probably have been called Obanje, which is, you know, um, sort of a, a spirit, I suppose, so, you know, a kind of spirit. And she said, and she said, and he said, and, and of course now in these days of um, evangelical churches in Nigeria, it's called a spiritual attack. Um, and that put me in mind of another aunt of mine who um, later sadly died. Um, but I remember sitting in my office in in in, um, in central London, and she rang me up because well, I rang her because my mother had told me, my godmother. My mother had told me she hadn't been well for a while. And, you know, so I rang her and I said, you know, so auntie, how are you? And she said, you know, it, it, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. And she went into how it had happened and why it had happened and what was going on. And, you know, I was sitting in this sort of very rational, you know, white, you know, white room with chairs and, you know, dressed in my NHS consultant wear and, just thinking, if I could put on the speakerphone and my colleagues could listen to this conversation, what would they make of it? 
And I think that's one of the interesting things about the world today, the fact that there are more people like me who inhabit these two worlds and, uh, and there are more ways of sharing, sharing those experiences, which I think can only be a good thing. There's a devastating detail, uh, two-thirds of the way through this piece, where you describe, after you having treated this, this patient, um, uh, a woman whose, whose child has died, and she very quietly straps the, the baby's body to her back and, and walks home. Yeah. Um, and with no wailing and no grief and, and we talked uh, yesterday or the day before about how you can walk through certain um, delivery rooms, uh, nurseries and, and Nigerian hospitals and they're silent because the expression of pain is, is, not, is not done in, in that way. What, that must really, I'm trying not to use French here, but um, mess with your mind a bit when you have to treat patients here and, and they're not... Uh, and the and the, the both the expression of pain and and what pain is is defined so differently. Do you ever find yourself having to sort of have to step back and recalibrate? Yes, I mean, I I, I would say I do that constantly um, because you know, like I said, you know, I carry my upbringing with me everywhere I go, and you know, even sitting here and sort of looking out here, I'm sort of thinking, oh, what would my grandmother in the village become? My grandson sitting on this, you know, what is all this? What is this? She would say, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> you, you know, you know, so you sit somewhere and you talk to people. What's that? Um, and all these people have paid to come and hear you talk. Um, but, but, so I, I have that constantly. But certainly within, you know, working the NHS here, I am very conscious of, of, of those um, differences. And, you know, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's un- it's unique to to you know the West versus you know developing countries of the West versus Africa or the West versus Nigeria. I think because even within Nigeria, you know, I I trained in Nigeria and in one part of Nigeria, you know, the women, you know, when you walk past the labor ward, you would know you were walking past the labor ward because the women would be screaming and yelling, and, um, and then you know I go to this part of northern Nigeria where Fulani women, you know, are so stoic and, you know, what is it in their brains or never, you know, is it that they don't feel the pain? Is it that they have ways of coping with it? And, you know, are those transmitted genetically or, uh, you know, is it that from the time you're young, you're, you know, you're told this is what you must do when your time comes? (coughs) So I think, you know, so that makes me conscious of here, but certainly here I, um, you know, a bit like Chloe was saying about therapy and depression, you know, I have friends who live in the U.S. as well, and you know, a lot of them are on therapy or um, on depre- antidepressants, and, um, you know, in Nigeria we don't, and maybe some people might say that's part of why the country is in the, you know, why Lagos is such a vibrant, crazy city, but... Um, but it's also interesting that when this piece came out on, on the web yesterday and lots of people shared it, I mean, at this point I've had about seven or eight emails, some from very close friends, some saying I've actually been, thank you for writing that, I've, I've been on antidepressants or I'm in therapy or someone in my family, and others saying, you know, thank you for raising this, we don't talk about it in Nigeria, we don't talk about mental health. And so I suppose, what do we know? You know, we think... Um, 
but, but certainly, going back to my point, you know, I think I made this point yesterday, and I think I should here again, is that, you know, each time I read about, one of the ways it works for me is each time I read about third world, you know, people say, oh, a third world NHS. I think, no, no, you have no clue. You have no idea what third world is like. You, know, you, you are, I'm not saying the NHS is perfect, and, you know, there's lots that could be done, but, you know, it, it's very different, and I think, and I think in some ways, actually, people knowing more about the reality, you know, this thing I was talking about, worlds being more open to each other, I think hopefully that that's what people will come away with, that appreciation of where they fit in, in the world, and, 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 you know, what, I don't want to say what to be thankful for, what not to be, but, you know, it's just a bit of perspective. You're in public health, um, you, you work in public health, and as a physician, you're sort of a detective, and you're, you've got this interrogative method, and you're listening to narratives and the language to pick up on signals to create a diagnosis or, you know, forward someone on to another specialist, and there must be some pleasure in that, some, the friction of human interaction in a way, and whereas, I, forgive me if this is incorrect, but in public health, it's a bit more broadly prescriptive for policy and for large groups of people. Do you miss the human act? You're kind of a warm guy, you know. Do you miss do you miss talking to people? Well, no, I don't. I miss patients, but I mean, what I often say to people is, it's a bit like your university days. You miss them, but you don't want to go back to them. <laughs> and that's not because I I, I don't like patients. I, it, it's actually strange because I think, in some ways, that now with what I've gained from my public health training, I would probably even be a better clinician because of that awareness of the broader context and, and individual. But, but it's fascinating because I think, you know, you, you say dry policy. Oh, no, it's not dry. You know, try going to a board meeting of all these people trying to persuade them to fund an immunization program for the whole of Westminster and trying to work out which councillor has what interest and which... You know, that's as fascinating. You know, I think it's, it's everywhere. You know, human, that whole, I'm very much interested in human beings and, and how we interact. And, and it's interesting because I go on, um, I, went, I was on the train once with a friend of mine. And, you know, this is when I was writing my blog. And I, we got off and I said, did you notice when that mother said to that, uh, when that child said to the mother, can I have something to eat? And the mother asked the father for some money, and he said, but I gave you 10 pounds this morning, where's it gone? And he said, you saw all that? You know, but I was, you know, for me, it was, and I do, you know, I see it all the time, sitting here and sort of <laughs> looking at the faces. And, and so for me, um, and I like public health because one of the reasons I like it is that it's, it, it's so different. You know, every day is quite different. So one day I'm, you know, investigating an outbreak of salmonella and then the next day I'm trying to talk to a group of school heads about how they can increase physical activity in their schools. And, and I think if I had specialized in one, um, you know, in some of the more traditional specialties, I would have got, I, I would get bored quite easily. You know, the idea of, you know, of just seeing renal patients or, cardio patients or yeah so and in terms of the detective work I mean you, you, you touch on something else which I found quite 
interesting, which was that I, you know, I've recently been reading a book by a surgeon, a female surgeon called Gabriel Gabriel Weston, Gabriel direct Weston, yeah. and you know, and, and she talks about wanting to be a surgeon. And I remember how very early in medical school we sort of started shifting out into the surgeons and the med- physicians because the physicians were more interested in that sort of deduct- you know the surgeons would say let's cut it open and see you know that was the ultimate you know if there's a question let's not talk you know take her to theater take him to theater we'll we'll open and see whatever the problem is well you know the physicians were more interested in okay let's deduct so she doesn't have you know the house mm. type of, of imagery and um and I don't think one is better than the other. I just think it's it's what people na- are naturally drawn to. Mm. Uh, I'm going to pass it to uh, Chloe. Have yeah. a little bit more chat, and then we can tell they can take some questions. You know, the, I wonder if, as individuals, do we do we struggle with the increasing amount of information we know about not just the world but our bodies and how they work and the pathologies that are developed from the behaviors that we pursue uh, mindlessly or otherwise, you know, is, is something like space, you know, the, the in, be it interior and a novel or exterior and, and how the characters, the real people that you write about, is it essential for us to, to maintain some kind of equilibrium? I feel very much so. Well, for instance, with the Internet, of course, now there's so much auto-suggestion, as what you were saying last night, of self-diagnosis, its latest... Uh, uh, symptom, but also um, and just too much input constantly. But also, uh, I'm, I'm a strong believer in distance, sort of two degrees of, or one degree of distance between yourself and the world, and, and just having some kind of space around you. That, uh, or there's also to preserve some kind of mystery, and also, you know, sort of a, a humble acceptance of, of. The fact that we will never that there's impossible to know everything or or um, uh, diagnose everything or medicate everything or treat everything. But it seems that that idea, is in some ways, runs counterintuitive, at least to how your mind works as a writer. I mean, you you were haunting secondhand bookshops in Berlin, picking up Soviet era um, descriptions of, of of circuses. Yeah. And it seems your mind, at least from the the book of yours that I've read in the two pieces that we've published is, is if anything, eclectic, but it seems passionately pursued in whatever it wants to do. Yeah, no, very much so. But, but, exact, but the, it's that acceptance that there's so many territories that will uh, still to explore and that will remain, well, some little corners will be explored. And then, but, uh, well, the Internet's a whole other subject. I know you wrote a book about it. But I, I, for, I forget what I wrote. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I have too many yeah. emails in between. <laughs> <laughs> but... I, did, did you come across patients who, were, who had a kind of resistance to knowing what it was that was, that was I mean, you described this in, in, you know, in some ways, using a metaphor as a spiritual metaphor for a, an obvious physical ailment is a kind of form of denial, one mm. could say, or a cultural form of denial. But did you come across other patients who, who were more direct about their desire not to know? And, and how do you treat someone like that who wants their body to re- remain mysterious? Yes, I mean, I, I think that's, that, that's an interesting question because, you know, if you look at it from, if you like, the UK perspective and then the Nigerian perspective. In Nigeria, um, because Western medicine is still relatively 
um, new, relatively. It's new for us too. Well, yes, but I, you know, so I think there is still that shininess, and so so when patients come, you know, it's when they come to the hospital, it's you know, walk your Western magic, you know, this magic that puts metal birds in the air, and so um, while here, I think. There's been a sort of shift more to well, you know, we know the limit and you know that old, and which is fascinating in practice because you, you know, when I first came here and I, I, they were talking about shared decision making between the doctor and the patient, um, I couldn't understand it because you know they said well, you know, you sort of you don't tell the patient, you say these are the options that we could do this, I could do this, I could do this, and which would you like to do? Because I thought, well, if I said that to my patients in Abuja, they'd just say, doctor, which do you think is best? Um, and I suspect in this country as well, you know, maybe 40 years, and probably some of the older patients as well would, would have that reaction. But I think it's a good thing um, for patients to be more active in, in, in deciding what they, they want. Um, and... In terms of mind over, I think there are instances of that. The instance I remember best, actually, is not um, is not a, a patient. It's a, it was actually someone I knew, you know, a friend of my mother's who, and I remember this so vividly. It's one of those things that just stays with you. So her husband had died, and we went to, you know, I was about eighteen then, and went to on a you know to condolence visit. It was after the funeral, and went to say sorry and. And she asked after another friend of theirs whose husband had died a few months before. And she was, you know, my mother said, oh, she died as well. You know, a few months after her husband died, she died. And it was such a tragedy because, you know, they left their children. And this friend of my mother said, oh, she was weak. You must not allow, you know, that's the mistake she made. You must not allow this sort of thing to happen, you know, you must be strong, you, you know, when you lose your partner, this can happen. And two months later, she died. And I remember just thinking, hang on, you know, what's, what's happened here? Um, and, and so, yes, I suppose there are those sorts of things that you can't explain. We talked a bit about it yesterday, about how, you know, the mind over the body and and what that means, and like you said, I think you know, as Chloe said, I think there are things that are just a mystery and, and will remain. And you know, I find myself in an interesting place where you know, well, one level, I'm, you know, all scientists are rational and whatever. And on the other, I'm thinking, well, actually, even with all the science, even with all the knowledge, there are gaps. And Do you think that explains, Chloe, our, our fascination with medical narratives? You know, a narrative is, is, exists because it. It tells a truth that cannot be told in a simple fact. You know, you, it, it's a vessel for for complicated, contradictory mm. things. Yeah. And when you when you read a medical narrative, it, it allows you that 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 dub, you know, that Keatsian quality of negative capability. Do you, do you have stories like this in your family that uh, similar to what Ike just said? You know that. Of uh, sorry, my of, mind is <laughs> <laughs> um, of, of mind over mind over body and 
Well, for instance, my 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 paternal grandmother was very religious, and mm. came from a small village in Mexico, and um, and my grandfather also. There, he died in his shop, eighty-six, and they never really. He just from one moment to the next, ten minutes, died in his shop. Went to work that morning, and um, they never. The thought of illness or anything chronic or. Uh, it was much better to just be fully living and then dead minutes later, but not have to, not need some kind of medical explanation or um, legal or professional, official or, or professional uh, certificate. But um, for one of my favorite, just I just thought of him now. <laughs> one of my favorite writers is Thomas Bernhardt, and you know he he suffered from a chronic lung ailment. And I think of him often because almost every novel, well, not every, many of his novels start with saying that he had part of the lung removed, or uh, and somehow it, it's even the the prose is it, I feel like it's fueled by this kind of breathlessness and and um, his 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 words are trying to catch or his body's trying to catch up with the words. And yeah, there's no paragraph breaks. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's a lot of repetition yes. and also returning to to in order to go forward, but um. I don't know, when you said medical narratives, I know that's not what you meant, but that's immediately what I thought. That's what, mm. that's the kind of narrative that I feel I visit most often is that kind of, a, well, there's a very physical ailment that is somehow extremely intertwined with the... And the body's embroidered the, into the, the mental, prose. Yeah, the prose yeah. and the, the mental... One final question, then we'll take some. Um, neurologists have discovered that the way that people envision their lives is they tell stories about themselves, which are may not, are maybe not articulated, but they're. It's an internal story. You carry your narrative, and as you, as you age and as you, as your life experience changes, you that narrative adapts to, you know, and it changes over time, and 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 you throw things out, memories out. I'm reading this from a New York Times article, so <laughs> I'm not an expert. <laughs> you, you toss out memories of things that actually are not useful to that narrative. They don't fit in that narrative. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if as writers who have written on, on the body um, or the mind or, and, and, and their connections, um, if your own narrative has changed as, as, you're, as you're looking you know, with a kind of double consciousness on, on what makes you work as this kind of human animal, you go first. <laughs> um, I think, yes, I, you know, I'm very conscious, you know. As you said, I, I'm a rational guy, I'm a rational <laughs> guy, I'm a rational guy. You know, I think it's interesting because having written this piece, I was very conscious that, you know, this is memory. You know, I didn't write any of this down. This is, what, 13, 14 years ago. And... And yet, some of it is so vivid. We're about to have an Oprah moment. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't a woman. <laughs> no. Yet, some of it is so vivid, you know. And, and in some ways, you're right, because I have these, these um, episodes, if you like, that, that are framed, you know, so the day General Bacha, who was the military dictator, died, I can smell the suya that was roasting outside my friend's office when someone first whispered in my ear, I hear the president is dead. You know, I, I can still smell, I can still feel the sun. And 
so you know, so, so yes, there are things that we, in terms of tossing out, I'm not sure I've done much tossing out. To be <laughs> so I think I've just um, got them all, which is why I begin to think I should put them down on paper, and maybe that will sort of offload them, and maybe this is the first bit of that. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't feel there's, I feel there's just more and more clutter. I'm sure there's things. Is this why you're writing about ultimate space? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's very liberating. (laughs) Well, thank you for um, your your readings and for for your discussion. Does anybody have a question for for Chloe or or Ike about their pieces or what we discussed or um, Freud? They're both experts. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa. Well, I, I'm glad this discussion took place in the Boy House, and I don't even say it's very rational. Too often, too absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or indeed, yes. but, and I think it's quite right to be talking about memory. But what, what I want to ask you, really, John, was you brought together these writings on medicine mm. uh, within a, a hugely literary journal. I mean, why did you go back and do that? I think you began to give us an answer, but I'd like to hear more. Mm. Well, I, uh, last uh, last night I, I realized I, you know, you said recycle everything. So I'm gonna remember try to remember what I said when we had an event. Is I feel like there, you know, there are different ways of knowing the world. We know the world through our physical and sensual and bodily experience, um, and then the, we know our, know the the world through our stories and through the stories we tell. And and those things collide most intimately when when, when we're ill. Uh, because our body, we have to give our body up to the narrative that we thought we had for it, to the, bo- the narrative our body is telling us it's telling, you know, that, that it's going to do. And I, I find that collision very um, uh, fruitful for, for writing. I don't think it's just about voyeurism, you know. Otherwise, we would have had some serious Dr. House kind of writing in the issue. We would have had some crash carts and someone bleeding from the orifice somewhere. And, and there is some excitement about that, but it's a cheap excitement. And I think the deep excitement comes from watching that, um, that, 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 that crux, I think, that we all live on all the time because we, we live in our bodies and we live in our heads and the twain don't always meet. And so we're, you know, some of the pieces in this issue, one by a woman with um, lymphoma who's, and she has a 22-year-old son who's autistic and she's dying. Mm. She's dying and she's... Um, trying to prepare her son for her, her absence and he's not um, mentally capable of understanding that and it's and so she she's telling the story of of doing that and doing her best at it and it's heartbreaking um, and we've got a story by another physician a um, public health official uh, who um, who has a, a doctor at a narrative medicine conference and he's, get, he's gone there to give a talk about how to treat patients through listening to their stories and telling stories to them and he's and he gets on stage and his slides are out of order and he's, he's not really focusing very well and, and he sort of start, begins to question in his talk uh, what the purpose of stories are and, and then he tells his own story that he's actually just come from his mother's funeral um, and, and then he tells the story of her death which is awful and terrifying but it's perfect because it's a true story but it has, it has no redemption and what does that mean for narrative and I think there are, there's an infinite number of kind of medical stories that can be told, and as we started to put together this issue, we we found that the the ones that we wanted to include um, were the ones that had the intensity of a story that needed to be told, you know, uh, that it was urgent and um, and 
we also wanted this issue to reflect the differences in the notion of what medicine is, you know. And so it, we didn't want to only have Western medicine. We didn't only want to have um, surgeons, you know, who believe things are curable. We didn't want to only have public health. We didn't want just patients, you know. We wanted everything. And, of course, that's why it's so small. <laughs> You work there, but you, you're allowed to ask a question. something you're very conscious of. You know, Nigeria is, if you practice medicine in Nigeria now, it, Nigeria is a very, um, I don't want to say religious society because um, people are heavily invested in the rituals of religion. It may not necessarily reflect in what they do, but so they will go to church and they will, and, and they will go to the mosque and, you know, and, and, and all of that. And so as a, a health worker in Nigeria, you cannot not engage with that. You know, you, it's a constant, um, you, know, that, you know, very soon we all learned the spiel. Um, patients who would say, well, I'm not taking the medicine because my pastor said, you know, I, had, you know, I went to church last Sunday and my pastor said I was healed. And the spiel was, you know, God gave us the knowledge that made these tablets that, you know, make you strong, and God wants us to also have them. You know, and here, obviously, I mean, if you said that, you might get hauled up before the GMC, the General Medical Council, because that's, you know, as you say, there's a, a clear separation. And I, I find it difficult to um, generalize on this in a large population scale. You know, I think it's it's individual. Some people will find ways of dealing with that separation and others don't and maybe for those who don't then they need some thing that to replace it and for others not. Um, it's interesting Chloe because you talked about the American cosmonauts and astronauts and I remember you saying that most of them said this was like a religious experience mm -hmm. and I was interested in the minority that didn't so they yeah. coped even though they didn't necessarily yeah, well, so. some suffered crises, yeah, yeah, the astronauts, yeah, yeah. and said yeah. that uh, yeah. it was, one described very evocatively that it was like, that all his certainty, all the certainties he had in place before going into space were just like pick up sticks that he were tossed into the air and then just fell scattered to the floor mm -hmm. afterwards upon return to Earth, mm -hmm. and that he had to do a whole reordering of all the scientific truths and philosophies and ideas. Those are words. Um, and uh, and for the cosmonauts, it was just just so difficult to imagine being 
thrust into space as part of an experiment. It was a huge engineering, and just faith in engineering, because especially for Gagarin, it was the very first, mm. well, some of the dogs had returned mm. alive, fortunately, but not all of them. And they're all female. The, the, they're all stray dogs, and they're all female. But I think it had to do with the, the nappies they used. For the, or somehow it worked better for the female dogs. That is but the best piece of trivia I've learned in yes, a long time. Yes, no, seriously. It didn't fit it. I it wanted to put it in the essay, but it didn't fit. It is, Because I write about the first woman in space who had a breakdown, even though it was very mysterious. They never found out what it was. And Gagarin, too, I, I write about how he, they had to just contain everything. And I just would ask myself, well, do they, did they believe in something higher? Or was there faith in something that was just being completely suppressed and negated and it just it's impossible to know to mm. be, get into their minds and uh, Gagarin later went on to write a few books with Lebedev with another cosmonaut who was also a psychologist and one called uh, Time and Space Perception of the Cosmonaut and again it's, it's sort of circling these issues but not really saying directly well this is what happens to your mind or this is what you're confronted well, with well it sounds like what, what is the, the, I'm blanking on the long Wordsworth poem the prelude um, you know it's like a, a, a 20, 20th century prelude yeah because you know, it was his yeah, yeah. sightings of the mountains that screwed up his yeah. sense of the beyond no, it's, isn't it? it's um, impossible it's a, it's a rebirth I think uh, what I kept thinking was it, is, it really was some kind of rebirth to be, whether, and it's, well, when you think of rebirth, you do think of something spiritual, whether it's, you know, labeled as something else, but. Uh, and you've had people, sorry. No, no. <laughs> no, you've had people who've um, encountered that rebirth in a different way. In some ways, I don't know if you've read any of Ayan Hesse Ali's work, and in some, you know, she's a Somalian, Dutch Somalian um, woman who basically came to Holland and encountered, you know, the whole libertarian and, and rational. You know, I, and when you read her, it's beautiful writing, but, you know, it sounds almost like, it's, although she's sort of rejecting Islam, it, it, to me it seems like she's replaced her religion with another, except that it's not called that. And, mm. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for a very interesting meeting. Um, I just wanted to ask the thing when sorry. You just mentioned a bit about gaps in knowledge. And I was wondering when it comes to mental health or dealing with pain and suffering, then is it necessary to fill that space or gap with your DSMD? I mean when you were diagnostic model. Yes. Because there is this uh, very, I mean, at least the sense that I was getting was pretty mistaken. The sense that I was getting that there is a very um, specific idea of what depression is, a very specific idea of what PTSD is. And um, the truth of the matter is that these illnesses exist within their own social, demographic, economic, political situation in North America or Europe in terms of exporting them. I think there's a lot to be lost in countries like Mexico or Nigeria or any other part of the world. Mm -hmm. is, 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 is there, are there translated editions of the DSMV? There are reinterpreted editions mm -hmm. in Japan right. where they have their own formulation. Yeah. 
I mean, certainly, you know, it's one of the things that um, I became more conscious of uh, because in medical school in Nigeria, not given a lot of context, you know, in terms of, you know, the social context in which, you know, so you sort of read, there's a condition, malaria is caused by little parasites, and this, 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 and you give people this medication and they get better. And, this. and it's interesting because it's something. I remember being embroiled in debates about HIV when I was a, a, a patient. I remember saying to one of the, you know, because I had, I remember I was at a bar in Abuja, don't ask. Um, and this guy said, you know, HIV doesn't exist and it's all made up and whatever. And I said, well, my problem is that when I was at medical school, I was taught that there is this thing called AIDS and it's caused by this virus and, and that these are the symptoms and that the, you know, and when you do this, and these are the things when you test these people's blood, this is the sort of thing you will see. And if you don't treat, and and and, and that when you know, and this was back in the nineties, and those who were wealthy enough to afford the antiretroviral drugs, when they took them, those symptoms disappeared. So I said, you know, I've never seen a, an you know an HIV virus under the microscope, you know, I don't know what it looks like, but I buy into narrative because this is, you know, it's for me, it's about getting my patient better. But then I think about it in, the, in relation to this woman, and I think, what, you know, again, why did she get, well, I'm giving it away, but that's fine. Why did she get better when I prescribed antidepressants? Because for me, that was the sort of eye-opening thing. I was very skeptical that it couldn't be depression. And then she takes some... I initially thought at the time of writing that, oh yes, so that's it settled then. But now more on reflection, I think, well, actually, maybe it was this experience of being brought with her husband to see the Western doctor in his jeans and whatever... You know, I don't know. Um, it, I, you know, it's, it's those mysteries, and I suppose I fall back on my crutch of whatever I, you know, how you get, you know, what, you know. I'm very sort of um, Bentham utilitarian, so greatest good or greatest number, you know, outcome. So how you get there. Um, because I think, but it, it poses interesting questions, especially in the UK, uh, or in the West, where there are also very strong debates about how money is spent, or what you spend your health budget on, and so do you buy antidepressants, or do you buy aromatherapies that, you know... Sorry? Or do you buy CBT for everyone? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. I think uh, one, two more questions. Now it's mentioned in the preliminary answers question. You're very skeptical that your diagnosis is going to be in the same world. Yeah. Now that I'm confident that you're going to be in the same world. What do you think? That being with one of the drugs, you know, is, it, is she reacting to the husband 
efforts, you know, to try to somewhat semi take it up on the state. You know. Do you think someone who is depressed would treat some you know, willpower, you know, willing to herself to become better? You know, this is where just you know, somebody in my neighborhood saying, go to the church, fast, pray, you know, you get healed. So do you think in certain in some of that because you know, when I found out that I really wanted to come, I got people but you know, came back to the bank. So I'm just wondering if it wasn't a job, you know, they had been some kind of mind within itself to get better, you know, just to appreciate the gesture. Well, I think there's been there's been quite a lot of research about the mind and its effects and you know, some of that was alluded to yesterday about, you know, people with diagnosis and you know, you know, terminal illness and people with a certain sort of mind set fare better. And I don't, you know, I don't know. How, I, I don't think I can explain it. I, I think um, at the end of the day, you know, it's just a bit. Um, you, we fall back to doing what we can um, in the best way we can and, and hope for the best. Um, and so at the end, I was just happy that this family was back where they were and, you know, whatever the reason for it. Maybe you're a good girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I could claim that. And, and a good writer. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a real pleasure to have the two of you together. Uh, Chloe's second time plowing the dark for us. Uh, you are kind of the, our, our secret cosmonaut. Um, and, and Ike, on, on his initial debut here as, as a writer, and I hope you go on to write, to write more of these stories and make a book out of it. Um, thank you for coming. I'm sure both would be happy to sign copies of issues which are downstairs or somewhere around here or a- answer any further questions, medical or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you.